chapter 12 of Luke. Uh, Today, in our study of Luke, we're going to conclude not just this chapter, but really because there's only 24 chapters in Luke, we can fairly say we're concluding the first half of our study through the book. Chapter 12, as it has unveiled itself to us over the last few weeks, has been a chapter rich in exhortation, or at least an opportunity for exhortation, I should say. It began, if you remember, uh, with Jesus warning the disciples. This is several weeks back now, but we studied Jesus warning the disciples to beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. That's how we began the chapter. And the chapter unfolded from there, teaching that because God knows everything and He's in control of everything, those who fear men more than they would fear God and behave accordingly will one day give an account for their foolish decisions, and we should not join them in that. We also learned how Jesus, in warning the disciples that they would fall, uh, face persecution from false men, they should not fear that persecution. They should not fear what will occur and whether they will have what they need and whether they will have provision because God will provide for them just as He has ordained. And then as the discussion went on from there, it took a turn toward wealth. Jesus, having talked about not fearing our need for provision, He then says, but beware those who would be greedy after the very thing God is saying He'll provide. And in that discussion on wealth, we learned about our misplaced desires for wealth and how that's an obstacle to us doing God's will. And then, in this long chapter, we took another turn off of wealth. And we started talking about how differences exist between the way servants would respond to their calling. And that some servants, given more responsibility, will bear more of an obligation in how they respond. And that we likewise should be conscious of what God has revealed to us, knowing His will, we have an obligation then in how we carry out the service opportunities He gives us. And now we're going to conclude the chapter with yet another turn. Now we're going to turn in toward a discussion that's altogether different from what He has been doing already. And this would raise a question, if you're like me and you read the Scriptures with an eye toward questions, the question that ought to come into your mind at about this point is, why is there such a strange mix of commentary in this one chapter. And yes, the chapter headings were given after the book was already written, but just take it for what it is as a discourse. Why does this discourse run the directions it runs? Why does it seem to weave and meander across all these different topics? Wouldn't there be a theme? Wouldn't there be some central point to Jesus' discourse here? Well, there is one, as you might imagine, and we're going to look at that thread today as we finish chapter 12. We're going to tie all of this together out of what we've been studying in this chapter. Let's begin where we left off, Chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now we need to stop there because in the next verse he'll actually go another direction yet again. So we're going to stop with those two and take just a moment to explore what he's addressing here. Think about where this fits in the context. Right before these verses, Jesus had been teaching on the responsibility of all servants, all disciples, to serve faithfully as men and women in ministry. And we said last week that ministry uh, doesn't always require ministry with a capital M. You know, in other words, pastors and counselors and worship leaders. It can be more often the case that ministry is simply the daily walk of every believer and how God calls us into service in the body of Christ through our gifting. That's a more common, and I think a more appropriate way to see ministry. That way we don't have the tendency to exclude ourselves from this issue. Now, having talked about that, he's abruptly changed, it seems abruptly changed, to a new discussion now about casting fire on earth and distressing baptisms. It's kind of an odd transition. Verse 50, in fact, as I read it, 
Reminded me of my own baptism a little bit. I was baptized as an adult in January in Colorado, outdoors. And uh, that's a bad mix, by the way. Poor planning on my part. I should have been saved in the summer. Uh, There was a light snowfall, in fact, going on at the time. And we were all waiting around a hot tub, but hot is a relative term. In this case, it had long since become Luke tub. And so it was this lukewarm water. And and in the cold weather, it, it was better than being out in the air, but it didn't make a lot of difference. We're all huddled under blankets trying to wait our turn because it was a group of people getting baptized. We step into the water only to have to get out. And then you get out of that water. Now you're worse off than before you got in. And I just remember thinking, uh, this is, this is a, a, a definitely a sacrifice, as little as I could think of one anyway at the time. But yeah, standing in that freezing water and, and so on, I could have certainly have uh, repeated Christ's statement in verse 50 there that I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Uh, But actually, the transition here actually makes good sense. Let me show you, and this is where we're going to start to weave the thread a little bit for chapter 12. Here's where the transition comes from. He was teaching in the earlier verses about a master who, if you remember, leaves and then comes back. And we said last week that that would have been a strange analogy in one way, at least in one way for the disciples. And that is that if if they picked up on the analogy, if they understood the master was Jesus, the servants were themselves, the slaves, the the disciples, if they had pieced that together, then they would have immediately drawn a question in their mind about, okay, if if you're the master, Jesus, why are you going away? Why are you implying that we're going to be left alone for a time to care for ourselves and to be responsible for ourselves in your absence? Why would you go anywhere? We said last week, the reason that was such an odd picture for the disciples was their view of what the Messiah was to do when he came was not a complete view. Out of what they had been taught and out of what they understood the scriptures to teach, they had an incomplete understanding of God's plan for the Messiah. And in short, they thought he was coming to stay. And in that thought, they had a misconception that he wants to address. He addressed it in the parable, of course, but now he's going to expound on it just a little bit in these verses we read this morning. In verse 49, he says, He came to cast fire on earth, but the fire is not yet kindled. This statement implies the very fact that the final step to Jesus' ministry was not going to happen in the disciples' day. The final step, the ultimate achievement, if you will, the ultimate outcome of Jesus coming to earth as Messiah finds itself fulfilled in the destruction of the earth. But clearly, by the statement he made in verse 49, it's not ready for that. The fire is not yet kindled. The time is not yet at the point when he walked the earth the first time. The time was not yet arrived for him to take on that final step of destroying the earth. Jesus, let's review a couple things. Jesus has all authority and judgment given to him by the Father. We've read those verses as I used them in this chapter earlier. He will exercise that authority by bringing fire to destroy the earth and replace it with a new world. A new world that is absent sin. If you want further teaching on this, I invite you to go to chapter 20 and 21 and 22 of Revelation. In those chapters, you'll see the description of the replacing of this world with a new heaven and new earth on which we will dwell with him eternally, absent sin, absent the effects of sin. If you will, it is the ultimate correction for what happened in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, the world was cast into sin on the basis of man's disobedience, As a result of that sin, God pronounced in chapter 3, curse on the earth, a curse that would ultimately result in the earth being destroyed because it had to be removed. It had been polluted by man's sin. It could not survive in that state eternally. 
only to be replaced, of course, when God is ready with a new heaven and new earth. That's the ultimate path we're on. That's the plan for the earth as we eventually will reach it. God eventually corrects the garden mistake by replacing what has been polluted. Jesus has the authority to do that. Remember, all things were made through him. Nothing being made was made without him. He is the creator of the Godhead. All things were made through him. And he will likewise be the one through whom the new world will be made. And as Jesus said these words to the disciples, he said the fire had not yet been kindled. In other words, the day for the destruction of the earth has not yet come. John 12.47 gives us a piece of information to complement this. Jesus says in John 12.47, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Which means that in his coming, his first coming, he was not on the scene, he had not arrived for the purpose of judging the world. Because had he come for that purpose, it would have necessitated the thing that we just heard him refer to out of Luke. The burning of the earth. The destruction of the sin that now pollutes the earth. That is the way judgment will be carried out. That's what we mean when we say judgment. In the same sense as a judge passing sentence on the guilty. So he is telling the disciples in John chapter 12, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. What he's not saying in John chapter 12, of course, is I will come again. And in my second coming, I come to judge the world. That's what we see referenced here in Luke in verse 50 and 49 and 50. There is a fire that will destroy the earth, but it is not yet kindled. Jesus makes clear he's not looking forward to the baptism he must undergo during this first coming because it implies the death on the cross. This baptism is not like you and I think of in terms of water. It's the other way around. The water baptism you and I engage in is a picture of this baptism. This baptism is the real one, if you will. It is the baptism of Christ's death and resurrection. We, being dunked underwater and brought back up, are picturing the death and the resurrection. Us in Christ. So our resurrection, is actually, our, our baptism actually, is a picture of this real one. This one that he's going to undergo, that he is not looking forward to. That was the purpose in his first coming. The second coming will be about judgment. As obvious as this fact is, perhaps for some of us today, this may not be any news to you. Everything I've said may already be something you understood, and I hope so. But as much as that may be familiar with us, Jesus' words here also give us a chance to examine something that I, I suspect some, if not all of you, if all of us, have failed to fully consider. A consequence of the fact that there are two comings. And that question is, why is there a gap of time between the first coming and the second coming? That's a much more interesting question because I tell you, that would have been the question on the minds of the disciples. They may, let's say, for example, they could have understood in the moment the need for Christ to die. And then let's say not, on, not only that, they also understood the need for him to come a second time to judge the earth. But even if they could have understood those two points, and I'm not saying they did in the moment, but even if they could, they still don't have the answer to the third question. Why a gap of time? Why not die on the cross, be resurrected, and just stay on the earth and establish your kingdom? Why ascend and wait only to descend later and bring judgment? Why the gap? And that's the question I think we need to examine as we come past these scriptures for just a moment. First, we have to acknowledge it is a conscious effort on God's part to maintain the earth in the meantime. Scripture tells us that Jesus himself is currently upholding the world and everything in it by the power of his word as he waits. Hebrews 1.3 
He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Those are references to Christ. Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory. Christ is the exact representation of the Father's nature. And Christ upholds all things by the word of His power. Said another way, were Jesus to cease in His holding the world together, it would cease to exist. It is the supreme demonstration of God's grace, mercy, and long-suffering nature that He continues to uphold a world so full of sin and hatred toward God. You couldn't come up with a better definition of God's grace than the very fact that the world still exists in its current state. What's ironic to me about that statement is how many people turn it around and say, there can't be a loving God if the world has so much sin in it. What Scripture says is, no, the fact that the world still exists is proof of a loving and graceful God. In that, judgment has not already come. That is our best proof of God's grace and long-suffering. At any point, on the Father's direction, Jesus could remove His upholding power and the world and all that is in it would be cast into judgment because God's holy justice demands that judgment and He is holding off in that judgment. And yet He continues to maintain this evil and unbelieving world and He does so as grace. Peter puts it this way. Now listen to the verses out of Second Peter, though you may have read them before. Listen to them with a little bit more clarity given our topic. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. By His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now listen to some of the early words in those verses. This world, we're told by Peter, is being reserved. That word in the Greek, it means literally saved like a treasure. Set aside and protected. Guarded is another way that that word in the Greek can be interpreted. It's being guarded, reserved. And then he says, kept for a day of judgment. The word kept in the Greek, tereo, it literally means guarded. So we're talking about a conscious, overt effort on God's part to keep the world the way it is, to keep it from falling apart totally, to keep it alive, if you will, and sustained. And then he says why. Peter says it's being kept that way for a specific day in the future when it will undergo judgment. In other words, there's a day appointed for that judgment and the earth is going to exist until that day. Not a day less. And it requires an active effort by God to even allow the earth to remain in the meantime. But one day, as Peter says it, God's going to cease to uphold this world. Jesus will judge it and it will be destroyed. Now, as believers, we're told clearly out of Scripture that we, es we escape that judgment. In fact, more than that, we participate with Jesus in judging the world. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Paul says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more than matters of this life? Paul's point in that passage is not to talk about our judging role, but he points it out in passing. That we will have a role as we come down with Christ as he returns to the earth in judging the world. 
But those who are unbelievers, on the other hand, will be the recipients of that judgment. And Peter says, and here's the point of the question I raised a moment ago. He says, we wait for that day, meaning we're in this period of waiting between his first coming and his second coming. We wait. And we wait, he says, for a day when that fire will be kindled. And then he gives a warning. He says, some people in the last days particularly will interpret this long wait that we're in the middle of right now as a reason for doubt concerning whether or not he will return. There's going to be people who question the Lord's return on the very basis that it's taken so long. And he reminds us, Peter reminds us, this wait that's required for Jesus' return, it's not a matter of slowness. Don't get in your mind that God's a procrastinator. It's not that God has forgotten to come back or that he's gotten too busy. There's, there's no accident to the waiting. Now, the day for judgment is just as sure today as it was yesterday. It's appointed. It just hasn't come yet. So what possible reason does God have for not sending Jesus to return right now or last year or a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago? Why is it we've been asked to wait this long? Peter tells us why in verse 9. God's delay is grace toward men. And specifically, and hear me out, specifically his, his delay here is grace toward those who throughout history are to receive the gift of faith and come to believe. Remember, before you and I could believe in Jesus, we had to be born. We had to be born, we had to grow up, we had to believe. And before we could be born, our parents had to be born. And before they were born, their grandparents had to be born. And all the way back until the day of Christ. You may not know your history that far back. Few of us ever do or ever could. But just as assuredly, it does go back that far. If you can trace it, you'll find parents and grandparents ad nauseum all the way back to the day of Christ. And Scripture tells us that God's plan for each of us began before we were born. He knew each of us before we were born and He knew the day we would be born. He knows the day we're going to die. And he knew that before any of us were born. In fact, he knew that before Adam was born. So obviously, God's plan requires that he wait for the natural course of history to play out. Not all men and women are born on the same day. We weren't all born the day Adam was born. There is a process that requires time to pass in order for all those who are going to enter into the family of God to be born. And for the birth process to go on through history and produce the lives of the billions of people over the thousands of generations that God had planned in history, He has to hold back Jesus' return until all of those that He has purposed to be born and to repent and to believe have come and repented and believed. So Peter is teaching here that God is not slow about His promise, but rather He is patient, wishing that none would perish. None of those who are going to repent and believe will be allowed to perish by virtue of a premature return of Christ. God continues to wait so that time will pass and His plan for believers will play out over the course of history. And He allows time for those who would be His children to be born and to come into repentance and believe. It's just that simple. But knowing this, you've got to remember the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is equally true. There will be a day, some day to come, and I would tell you that it's not that far off, relatively speaking. A day to come when the last man or the last woman, whoever they are, who is appointed to believe, will believe, and then Jesus' waiting will be over. For there will be no need for any further waiting. And on that day, judgment will come, complete with fire for the earth. That's God's plan. 
He is not wishing that any would perish, but would come to repentance. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, he wishes that fire had already been kindled. He would just assume it come now. In part, because as God, he is just as displeased with sin as the Father. He would no more wish it would take one more day than necessary either. But that's God's plan, and Jesus, in obedience to the Father, will let it play out. And then as we go back into Luke, you're going to see the discourse now take yet another turn. In chapter 12, verse 51, he moves in what appears to be an all-new direction again. He says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Well, pause there. You notice he doesn't say son against mother-in-law. That's a given. (laughs) But what's the point in the division? Why the change? It's, It's almost as though he's just randomly stringing thought together. If we pay close attention, I think you're going to see how this comment fits into the prior one. And again, it'll begin to extend this thread a little bit. To those who are thinking that Jesus was only going to come once and then he's just going to stay, their assumption is, as I said, he was as the Messiah. He arrives on the scene. Now as the Messiah, he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. That was what was promised. And so here he is. Ergo, the kingdom must be here for good. But if he's the Messiah and that kingdom were set up, well, then peace is going to reign. So as a disciple, seeing the Messiah and assuming he's here to stay, well, naturally, peace is at hand. The world is about to see the peaceful kingdom of God set up. And then Jesus looks him square in the eyes and says, if you think I came to grant peace, you're wrong. You're wrong. He says, forget it. That's not going to be the result of my visit. On the contrary, my visit to earth this time is going to produce division which again was further evidence of the fact that there had to be a gap between his first coming and the actual time he comes and stays and sets up his kingdom. He gives some examples of what he means by division. He says from now on, families are going to divide basically over the name of Christ. In a home, he gives an example of five in this home. He says two will be on one side, three on the other. In other cases, three on one side, two on the other. What are these sides? What is he talking about? Well, the divisions here, they run real deep even to the point where family members are against one another, because the issue is so important. We're talking about where you stand in relationship to Jesus, the man, and his ministry. It's not just division in the sense of discord. Family's going to be, you know, fighting with one another. What's news about that? Even in Jesus' day, you know, a family that didn't get along, whoo, that's a surprise. Happens all the time. No, the division here is far greater, far more significant. It's the kind of division that results, sadly enough, with one person attending church and the other one staying at home. Or one person feeling led into a Christian church and another one feeling led into a different faith. It's the kind of division that shows itself in eventually families breaking up, kids not talking to parents, parents not talking to kids. Now, I'm not saying that's his heart. I'm not saying the Scripture is telling us we should want that. What he's saying is that, unfortunately, because of the sin of those who reject Christ, unfortunately, that kind of result is the natural consequence of the message Jesus brought to earth that day. Now, the meaning, as clear as it is to you and I, that we're talking here about a division on the basis of the person and the work of Christ, is not one that can be misused to suggest that children have no obligation to their parents, or parents have no obligation to their children, or siblings to one another. That would be a misuse of the Scripture. What we're looking about, when we look at this division, we're talking simply about the basic fact, spiritually speaking, that there is no such thing as a third group. 
You can't sit on the fence when it comes to the issue of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Though there are people who seem to try, and they do a pretty good job of it in some cases, they're only fooling themselves. The unbeliever who would acknowledge Christ as being a good teacher, uh, a good spiritual leader, uh, worthy of a Christian faith, blah, 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 but never believes in their heart of who he is and in doing so gives themselves over to him, they're just as much an unbeliever as the person who says Jesus is Satan. One's just more overt about it than the other. And that kind of division, that yes or no, black and white, in or out kind of division, is the result of the gospel message. And here's where you draw the line. If you're unclear, if you have difficulty expressing it, if you need to explain this to someone in your own family, here's what Scripture tells us. You either believe Jesus is who He was, who He said He was on this basis, that He is God in the flesh, He wasn't mere man, He was God as well. He is the one who made everything in the universe, including you and I. He is the one with the power to judge everyone and everything. And when He died, His death on the cross was a perfect payment for our sins before God the Father who demands payment for sin. And therefore, if we believe in Him, we will be saved from our sins because He will have paid the penalty for them. It's just that simple. If, none of those, if one or more of those statements are not agreeable to somebody, they are not a Christian. By definition. They can say everything else they want to say, but if they object to any of those statements, they are not a Christian. They are not saved. Or if they add anything to those statements, if they believe that those are true, yes, but you also have to blank. If that's in there somewhere, then they are believing a different gospel, as Paul would put it. It's an all or nothing issue. There is no third position. There is no compromise. I like the example he uses, a family with five members, sort of an odd number. I like that because it forces the division. You know, you'll... We like to think in terms of even numbers, twos. You know, you don't like five. How do you divide that evenly? You don't, and that's the point. You can't have two, two, and one. There's no third group. It'll be two and three, or three and two, or four and one. Or it's going to be divided. You cannot cut the baby in two, so to speak, as Solomon would try. You cannot make someone half a Christian. They are either in or they are out. And that's the effect of his ministry And in fact, I would tell you that's also a measure of the importance of his ministry. That as important as a family is to God, as important as relationships are, and marriage particularly, nevertheless, what's more important is where you stand in relationship to what you believe about Jesus. And as I said earlier, you can't use this as an excuse for children to disobey their parents. For example, some would say that we have to abandon a family member who does not believe as we believe. That your faith is so important that if your parents aren't with you in your faith, then as a child, you're excusable. it's excusable to write them off, to ignore them, not to listen to their counsel, to show disrespect toward them. I know there are cults who use these kinds of verses for that very reason, because what a cult wants to do more than anything else is separate you from the influence of other people and control your way of thinking. So a cult will often begin with a comment about the need to divorce yourself, to disassociate yourself from anyone who does not think the way you do. That's a dangerous way to go, to be sure. The issue here is not on how we treat our family members. The issue here is on what side you're on in your belief about Christ. And yes, that division will cause friction. It can't help but do that. As much as one might try to be accommodating. How can I accommodate on the basic position of who Christ is? And on what faith in Christ means? And on why it changes how you see the world and how you live it? To compromise there 
is to compromise in your faith. That's the nature of the division itself. How can you compromise on that? There will be friction. But we can't let our family obligations cause us to step back from our belief in Christ, even when that belief difference causes friction or division. It is their choice to divide on the basis of their sin, not ours on the basis of our faith. And then finally, the last topic in the discourse, as we finish out the chapter, ultimately to put it all together. Look at chapter 12, verse 54. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately immediately you say, the shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. But why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way, there make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you've paid the very last cent. This is an interesting commentary. And again, it hinges on the previous line of discussion. You saw how the first two fit together, I think. Now, take a look at this. He says, having just finished in a discussion about the fact that what he brings now will not lead to peace, but rather division. And in fact, before that, he was telling the crowd that his appearing means that there will one day be a fiery end to the earth in judgment. Then he turns to the crowd and he basically says in these verses, now what do you make of those signs? He decides to place the crowd on the spot. He wants to force them a little bit here to decide how they're going to view him, how they're going to view his ministry. We've seen him do this in other places. When we've studied through Luke already, we've seen Jesus place a crowd or an individual or a Pharisee on the spot. Who do you say that I am? What is it you believe? What does this miracle mean to you? His point here is that it's not hard. It's not hard for them to know who he is. He hasn't been hiding this. It's not hard for them to see the signs and understand that He is the Messiah. If only they're willing to believe the obvious signs. He makes this point with a comparison to weather prediction, which I love. He says, you know, you all become pretty good at predicting the weather. You look at signs in the sky and you say to yourself, oh, well, that sign means this. And sure enough, you're usually right. Because you can make the connection. It's not that hard. You see certain patterns and you draw the obvious conclusions. And though you have the ability to understand signs for something as unpredictable as weather, and as unimportant, for that matter, you don't understand the circumstances of the present time, of what's going on around you right here and now. And he calls them hypocrites. Now, I want you to understand that word. Remember? Interesting, we started the chapter with a discussion of hypocrites, and we end the chapter with a discussion of hypocrites. What was the definition of a hypocrite? Somebody who pretends to be somebody they're not? You know, this is a hard word for him to use against them at this point. It would have been easier on them if Jesus had just turned to them and said, you know how to predict the weather, but you can't tell what's going on around here? You morons. Right? If he had just called them morons, that's a better word. Or if he had said, you're just blind and deaf. You're not paying attention. No, he says you're a hypocrite. You're pretending that you can't do something that you can, in fact, do. They were pretending to be people who couldn't discern the signs of the day. They're feigning ignorance. They're pretending. They're seeing the signs in their head. Thoughts are popping into their head that says, that's a sign of a Messiah. 
That's what we were told the Messiah can do. That's a miracle only the Messiah can do. I wonder who Jesus is. That's what they're doing. Under the, misin- under the false assumption that if they can pretend they don't know who he is, they won't be held accountable for getting it wrong. That's the basic desire here. The basic desire of this crowd is, you know, you really don't look like the one we wanted. You're not the type of Messiah we were looking for, so I'm just going to pretend I don't see the signs. I'm going to look the other way. I'm going to conveniently ignore the obvious truth here because if you're not who I want, maybe if I just ignore you, I'll get somebody I do want later. Maybe the next guy coming down the road will have the power to dethrone Rome. He'll be mighty and gloried like Solomon or David. This peasant guy from Nazareth, of all places, Nazareth, not the one we want. So we're going to conveniently ignore the signs we've been given. They were pretending and they were hypocrites. It's the same kind of claim to ignorance that a driver might make to a policeman when they get pulled over for speeding. Oh, officer, I didn't know the speed limit in the neighborhood was only 30 and not 60. And the officer just smiles while he writes the ticket. Because there's signs. You know, the signs were up. You're pretending you didn't see those signs. You're pretending you're too stupid to figure out that you don't drive 60 in a neighborhood. I'm not buying it. Here's your ticket. It's exactly what's going on here. Ignorance will not be an excuse for the generation that came or that, that Jesus came and presented himself to, the ones that saw him with the disciples, ignorance will not be an excuse for that generation because the signs were everywhere and they willfully ignored them. And Jesus, who knew their hearts, said, you're a hypocrite for claiming you can't decide who I am. You can't know who I am. And now where has he put this in the context of his discourse? He had just finished teaching on division in his ministry. The division that would be produced by his first coming. And By itself, that implies we're going to have a choice to make as to who Jesus is, right? The very fact that there's going to be division means you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to come down on one side or the other. You can't stay undecided. There's no such thing as undecided. That's simply a hypocrite. It's somebody who's pretending they're not interested. And Jesus looks squarely at the crowd and he says, you can't hide behind your supposed ignorance. You can't hide. Either you believe or you face judgment. And then look at how he demonstrates the fact that they have willfully, willfully decided to ignore the coming judgment. He says, when you get called before a magistrate, and what a magistrate is, is a judge. When you get called before an earthly judge, you're motivated to make peace with your enemies, aren't you? Now, the scene he's painting here is of somebody who's been, made, who's been accused by, by another person. I've, I've accused someone of stealing my oxen, let's say. And I'm taking you to court where if I'm successful, if the judge agrees with me against you, you're going to jail for your crime. Now, in your mind, you know you're guilty. You know you stole the ox. You know you have very little chance of getting away with it. You know that when you get before the judge, the evidence will be presented. It'll be crystal clear. You'll have no excuse. You're in trouble. And so Jesus says, when you're being hauled before the magistrate under those circumstances, you know enough to make peace with your enemy before you get there, because that's your one hope. The last thing you want to do is stubbornly hold out for innocence that you know is not coming, only to stand before a judge and have the judge declare the obvious thing. You're guilty. Go to jail. And he says, and you know you're going to pay every last cent of what's due under those circumstances. So knowing that they're guilty... And knowing the judgment is coming provides the motivation for the person to repent, to confess, to confess their sin and make good with the person they've offended. And he reminds them of the 
common sense nature of this situation so that He can relate it to their present circumstances. Jesus has already taught them that He will be their judge one day. He's going to be, He's the judge. But He's also the one who's been offended. When we sin, we sin against God. He is also the one who is our accuser in the sense that He is the one who has been injured by our sin. And when Jesus judges the sin of the world one day, He's going to bring penalty upon all of those who haven't already settled with Him. Who have not already, in the, exa- in the case of that example He used, gone to Him essentially and settled up before they reached that day of judgment. And He says, knowing the signs, realizing who Jesus is, He says, well, why don't you apply a little of the same common sense that you would use in your everyday life going before an earthly judge? Why don't you use a little of that common sense now in light of the present circumstances, in light of the fact that I am the Messiah and I've proven it as such? And if you don't do that, if you're unwilling to reconcile with me now while there is an opportunity made available, one day, he says, you're going to face the living God and it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in that moment... You will not escape until every cent has been paid, which, by the way, does not imply there is some limit that you can somehow pay off that debt because the wages of sin are eternal death. His point being that there will be no way to pay it off. One of the problems with this crowd and perhaps for us today is I think we tend to forget that judgment is sure and it is unavoidable and it is coming. It tends to get off our radar for a while. Now, as a believer, we have no reason to be focused on it, not from the standpoint of our own destiny, but maybe as a motivator for us to be out telling others about what we already know and about what we already have, it should still be on our minds. It should still be a motivator in that sense. Because in the guilty man's example that Christ used, of the man going to the magistrate, he couldn't help but know the judgment was coming. He was walking step by step, every step a step closer to the judge, and it was coming. But you know, in our own life, it's exactly that same way right now. Each day is a step closer to that day of judgment. Each day you wake up, you've taken one step closer to the judge. So if you are not already a believer, you're walking toward a sure destruction. But even as believers, we should have a sense of urgency out of that very fact. There are people around us, the ones in our own family perhaps, who are walking just as assuredly to that same day. And for them, the day doesn't wait until the day of judgment for the earth. It comes the day of their death which we don't know when that will happen. It's just assuredly one day closer. That's all. It's our responsibility to help them understand the sense of urgency because that's the mission God's given us. That's the ministry of carrying the gospel. Yes, it's bringing the good news, but you know, there's another half of that coin that sometimes is an equally effective motivator for someone to hear the gospel message. Some are brought on the basis of the grace and the good news of freedom And just as assuredly, some are brought to their knees on the recognition of judgment. Whichever way God chooses to bring a heart to know Him, we ought to be prepared to put to use. So let's put this chapter together as we finish the teaching for the day. How would you summarize the chapter? In all these diverse topics and all these various commentaries that Jesus has given us in this discourse, one seems to flow into the other, yes, but what is the common thread that pulls them all together? Well, if you stand back for a moment, looking at the topics and looking at who the audience was, which primarily, again, is the disciples, then you begin to see a chapter that fleshes out as probably one of the greatest chapters in Scripture on discipleship, on the discipleship of the apostles in that day and, of course, for us again today. 
What do I mean by discipleship? Well, if you talk to me today about discipleship, you tend, you'll tend to do what I do, I'm sure, which is to say, well, the, the disciplines of being a disciple are pray, study your Bible, be in church, or you know, meet with other believers. Uh, a tithing, maybe, is one you might mention. Service in your gift might be something that comes to mind. Those are all very good. Those are all necessary parts of our walk. But interestingly, Jesus is not spending a lot of time on those topics with his disciples, at least not yet, is he? What he's spending a lot of time on are these more radical and actually more difficult steps of discipleship. Run through them with me. Listen, he says we need to be transparent. He begins the chapter by talking about the fact that all things will be revealed one day. All the things of men that are secret will one day be known. So be transparent. Don't live a dual life. Don't show me something in here that you think I like to see and then go home and do what you want to do on the side and myself the same. But be transparent. Live what you believe. And then he says, because all things will be known one day, it is important that we understand to fear God, not men. We can fool men. We can't fool God. So the second step of discipleship is, remember in all that you do, who it is you really fear. Because our fear of God is going to lead us to serve Him and confess Him before men, while our fear of men is going to cause us to disobey God. In our serving Him, in our fear of Him, we will testify to Him in our lives. So a third step of being a good disciple is making sure that your life is a testimony to your faith on the basis of who you fear. Jesus says we need to turn our backs on the world in order to serve Him. But, in our willingness to turn our back on the world, to fear God and not men, He says, do not worry over your earthly needs. Because that's the first thing the enemy is going to put in your mind. Tell me if I'm wrong, but the first thought that comes to your mind when someone begins to suggest a radical serving of God in your life, of, of devoting yourself in all your days to doing what God wants you to do, isn't one of the very first things that pops into your mind a concern about how am I going to feed myself, how am I going to clothe myself, how am I, you know, what about my job, what about my income, what about all the plans I've made, about my mortgage, all those thoughts, don't they come in somewhere early on in any thought? about whether I'm going to be able to serve God the way He wants me to or not. So is it not a surprise that, God, that Jesus would turn around at this point then and say, don't worry about those things because they should not be an impediment? And then He goes to the next step and says, in fact, don't be greedy for money, which is itself a sign of fear rather than trust. He says, whatever you do, don't go to the end extent of being so absorbed in your daily needs that you become greedy for money. Next, he says, at all times, be ready for Jesus' return. Why? Because it helps keep us motivated to serve Him. It gets us away from this tendency to forget that He's coming and start to fall back into our own ways of serving ourselves. No, if you were to be told today, if you knew for a fact Jesus was coming tomorrow, I am willing to bet you a year's paycheck that the next 24 hours would be very different in your life than the 24 hours you currently have planned. And yet, Scripture says, that's how we're supposed to think every day. Because it could be that he comes back tomorrow. Then he says, serve the body of believers faithfully, according to what you've been given, according to the gifts and the knowledge of his will that you have. Well, that's naturally what you would do in your attempt to be prepared for his return at any moment. The last thing you want to do when he comes back is find you doing something you're not supposed to do. Kind of like the kid who's surprised by the parent. Oops. So naturally, if you think he's coming back tomorrow, serve faithfully. And then he ends, as we read today, for there is a judgment coming when you will be evaluated for what you've done and ultimately unbelievers will be judged for ignoring the truth. 
That's ultimately the bottom line. That when he returns, he returns with specific purposes in mind. Hard purposes. Ones that will not be delayed. That will not be overlooked. So as we suspend our study of Luke for a time, as you know, we're going to be uh, stepping out of Luke for a while and others will be teaching in other areas of Scripture for a time. This is a good breaking point for, for more reasons than just the convenience of 12 chapters. There's a lot to consider out of chapter 12. I would actually encourage you to stay in chapter 12, to meditate on some of these things, to test your heart on whether or not you really could stand up against the test of what chapter 12 is asking us to do. As a picture of discipleship, I don't know of anywhere that's more challenging. I know a lot of people that would sign up to pray every day and study their Bible every day before they'd sign up for any one of the things we just read in chapter 12. That's the chapter that's going to make the difference in whether or not we affect the world and influence the kingdom in the time he's given us. So I invite you, meditate, pray over, study over chapter 12. Ask yourself, can I measure up to chapter 12? And if you can't, and I doubt any of us can in full, then what can we do differently? Take a small step. Do something small. Don't quit your job tomorrow unless you feel confident that's the next step. But maybe just take some small change in your schedule or some small change in your budget or some small change in how you spend your time in service, whatever it may be, and see if that doesn't begin to open up new doors. Because I guarantee you, as you serve and give yourself over to what Scripture tells you to do, God will not only make it possible, He will make it easy. Easy in here, if not out there. As a disciple, as all of us are, we're called to follow Jesus. We're called to represent Him to a lost and dying world. We can't do that, though, if we can't measure up to the expectations that He gives for what it means to be a disciple. Let's go to prayer. Let's ask the Father to speak to us each personally as we go into this time of, of communion. Father, in praise and in thanks and in devotion to your study, we've come to worship you this morning. And Father, there are so many in the Christian walk whose focus in worship is a one hour a week event, for whom the notion of being Christian means little more than where we attend service one day a week. There are many, Father, for whom... A Christian walk doesn't even include that. That it is merely the title that they attach to their lives. Father, we do not wish to be like that. Our presence here this morning is proof of that. We could be in so many other churches, Father, studying Your Word in such a meaningless way and in no way at all for that matter. In churches, Father, where our desire to entertain is greater than our desire to sacrifice. Father, we have made a commitment to be a part of a, a special place, a small church devoted to Your Word and devoted to worship in spirit and truth and devoted most of all to one another as we give thanks to You for this body. Let that, Father, become something great. Let our gathering here, Father, be something that by its ability to change each of us individually might produce something greater than each of us could do on, on our own, but in the power of the Holy Spirit could be something that could do great things for the kingdom. I pray, Father, that the chapter in Luke that we've been studying might be a springboard for that, as you might make it possible. First, individually, that we would, in our own walk, in the decisions we make, in the way we live our lives, would not be afraid, Father, to simply do what you ask us to do. We would not be fearful of men and of all the plans we've made and of the things we desire. We would be willing to let those go if that's what you call us to do. Or in keeping them, Father, we would not allow them to take over our desires and to guide our decision-making. 
And in the work we do in this small fellowship, Father, we would not let our uh, opportunities and our abilities and our desires to serve be merely on the basis of what we get out of it. But, Father, we would be seeing others and their needs first, as you've called us to do, that we would be servants more than recipients. That, Father, in our walk outside of the church, in our workplace, in our homes, in our schools, wherever you would place us, Father, that we would be seen as someone who is not fear men, who is willing, Father, to set aside those things the world values, that might speak differently and act differently and in all ways, Father, show the love of Christ in us. We ask for these things, Father, because we cannot gain them in our own power, but only through the Holy Spirit and We know, Father, that your instrument for change is your holy word, and we know we've devoted ourselves to its study, so, Father, we can only pray expectantly that you would now do the work that you promised to do with it. You say it will not go out and return void. Father, I I ask for that promise to be made sure and and true in our lives. Let us see that fruit, Father. We will go into a time of devoting ourselves in, in the communion service to a memory of your death, Father. Let us remember the death of your Son on the cross principally so that we might remember His second coming as well, that it might look forward for us, Father, to that day soon to come when we will see Him face to face. We ask to be ready for that moment and to be given the strength and the desire to spend our days being ready. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.